Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Peppis, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Major Jackson, author of five collections of poetry, The Absurd Man from 2020, Roll Deep, 2015, Holding Company, 2010, Hoops, 2006, and Leaving Saturn, 2002, which won the Cave Canham Poetry Prize for a first book of poems. His edited volumes include Best American Poetry of 2019, Renga for Obama, and the Library of America's County Cullen Collected Poems volume. A recipient of fellowships from the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, the Guggenheim Foundation, National Endowment for the Arts, and the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University, Jackson has been awarded a Pushcart Prize, a Whiting Writers Award, and has been honored by the Pew Fellowship in the Arts and the Witter Binner Foundation in conjunction with the Library of Congress. Jackson is the Gertrude Conaway Vanderbilt Chair in the Humanities at Vanderbilt University, and he serves as the poetry editor of the Harvard Review. On Wednesday, May 5th, 2021, Jackson will give a virtual reading as a guest of the U of O's creative writing program. Thanks, Major, for coming on the show. It's great to have you. Thank you, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. Your journey to poetry is a somewhat unusual one. Would you tell us about that journey? I think I, I think I know what you might be referring to. Um, I had the great fortune of being raised by my grandparents and they stressed uh, literacy as um, a huge part of, of being in the world, but particularly as an African-American um, literacy, the word uh, carried great importance in relationship to, um, to being a, a success in life. And, and yet I was a reader as a, as a kid and there were several books in their stack of books uh, that I was drawn to. Uh, the collected uh, or the selected poems of Langston Hughes and paperback edition of, of Robert Frost's poems edited by Louis Untermeyer. And I treasured those books as a kid. Um, uh, but when I went off to college nearby at Temple University, I, I did not declare English as a major, even though I was a, a reader, I, I went into the business school and earned a degree as, as an accountant. But I took poetry writing courses um, and I took lit courses as well. Uh, back then we had electives, if you'll remember, not, there wasn't, I think we were just starting to talk about majors and minors. And I might even heard someone at one point say I'm a double major, but that might be a, a dream. So we had all these electives, as you know, and most of mine were taken in the English department. And I had the great fortune of, of while earning a business degree, particularly in accounting, I, um, I was also writing poems which at times conflicted, um, uh, particularly in my business classes, but it, it, it launched me in a way. And my great teacher, uh, I had several teachers, but one of them that, that was hugely imp impactful was, is, was the poet uh, Sonia Sanchez. So uh, uh, after graduate school, I continued to write and balance out a work life as an accountant uh, and as an artist until 
I came to University of Oregon. <laughs> so, so let's talk about your time at the University of Oregon. You are a graduate of, of the University of Oregon's esteemed creative writing program. Can you share a particular lesson or memory from that experience that has shaped you and your poetry and has stayed with you over the years? Sure. I, I had several lessons. Um, as someone who grew up in Philadelphia and spent summers here, in fact, in Nashville, Tennessee, most of my work emerged from that, from that space. And driving cross country was a, was a, a kind of a, a, a altering of my consciousness such that when I arrived in Oregon, I like to tell people I suddenly I was a nature boy because I was hiking along the way and camping along the way. And there was something about, about arriving in such a lush place as the Cascade Mountains that um, became essential to my, my writing process. Uh, hence why I spent so many years in, in Vermont. But um, the big lesson there was community and rigor and being rigorous about what it means to be um, a writer. I think many of us arrived with a greater or lesser sense of ambition and also commitment to the art. Not to say that there were dilettantes among us, we were quite serious, but um, I think the U of O program is right for someone who has landed upon the fact that there is nothing else that they wanna do in life except for live the life as a writer and live the life of the mind. And there was a, it was a demanding uh, program. Uh, my teachers there uh, uh, raised the bar and then raised the bar again and then raise the bar again. <laughs> so you, you didn't have time to get too comfortable um, with your particular achievements. And I'm, I'm enormously grateful for that. I am acutely aware of the rigor and the bar raising in the program here. <laughs> so Major, would you be willing at this point to read us a poem? Sure, I, I wanna read, start off with a new poem, um, a poem that was published this week on Poem A Day, the Academy of American Poets. And interestingly enough, one of my, uh, what we call mentors on the page, even though I never studied with uh, Philip Levine, he was a, a treasured uh, poet among my cohort there at the University of Oregon's uh, MFA program. We all read, uh, what work is his 1992 Pulitzer Prize volume. And prior to arriving, I had already begun uh, an apprenticeship uh, to his work, his poems. So this poem was inspired by him, but it begins, and I've been writing a lot, I would say after last summer and the uh, tragic uh, death of George Floyd, trying to write poems that, um, that creates moments of empathy and, and sympathy with each other um, across, uh, across lines of, of course, race and, and class. Um, and in this case, as a parent, one of my treasured 
um, moments always is watching one of my children who are all now young adults uh, and one teenager, but watching them in that moment where they've discovered something and they're curious about it. It can be a stone or um, in this particular case, uh, my oldest son, uh, watching him pick up a shell on the beach, the memory of that triggered uh, this poem. It's also a poem I would say about uh, new beginnings and me kind of fine tuning my thinking about the impact of, of poetry in the world, or maybe even reminding myself. I've always had a belief that poetry has a way as a social art form of speaking to the most difficult, um, the most, most difficult issues that we face as, as human beings politically, uh, particularly. Let me begin again. Let me begin again as a quiet thought in the shape of a shell, slowly examined by a brown child on the beach at dawn, straining to see their future. Let me begin this time knowing the drumming in my dreams is me inheriting the earth, is morning lighting up the rivers. Let me burn my vanities, old music in the pines, sifters of scotch, a day moon like a signature of night. This time, let me circle the islands of my fear only once then live like a raging waterfall and grow a magnificent mustache. Let me not ever be the birdcage or the serrated blade or the empty season. Dear glacier, dear sea of stars, dear leopards disintegrating at the outer limits of our greed, soon we will encounter you only in motivational tweets. Reader, I should have married you sooner. This time, let me not sleep like the prophet who believes he's seen infinity. Let me run at breakneck speed towards sceneries of doubt. I have no more dress rehearsals. Look closer, I'm licking my lips. Wonderful, wonderful poem, gorgeous. Thank you so much for sharing that. You, you just mentioned, and you've mentioned before, the importance uh, in your sense of poetry of community and the social function of poetry. Would you say a little bit more about that? I mean, it's not, it's not always the case that poets emphasize community in the way that you do. Say a little bit more about why that's so central to your understanding of poetry. Sure. I can draw on some moments that we all share, which are funerals, for example. Um, what about weddings? Um, what about graduations? So there's, there's that function of, of poetry to speak to the large kind of ritual moments in, in our lives. That's when, when, we, when we most see it. And when we are ushering in now a new president, right? We, we have an inaugural uh, poet who almost always gathers us all together in a renewed sense of optimism and hope about the future, fantastic. But then there are other moments in which 
those those lines are not so clearly drawn those occasions and maybe that's when we need poetry the most i'm so happy that we have the daily poem because language is something we all use but poetry has a way of as an art itself to reminding us of the import of the words that we use with each other and so my hope is that encountering poems or making a ritual or reading poems if not every day once a week reacclimates us once again to each other and our own particular uh, emotions language poems make us a community as a result of that because we're dealing with feelings and we're dealing with shared experiences and even those they may appear on the surface to be private. Really interesting. So let's talk a little bit about the most recent volume, The Absurd Man. Hmm. So first, let me ask you, tell us about the title of that volume, The Absurd Man. Sure, the title comes from uh, Albert Camus, famous The Myth of Sisyphus, in which he, through several examples, gives a portrait of a man who lives in the present moment, uh, a portrait, if we go back to Greek, uh, the Greek image or figure of Sisyphus, for whom the daily routines of life um, might indicate that there is no purpose, but indeed the purpose itself is in living. And so, um, uh, Sisyphus doomed to push a rock up a mountain uh, only for it to fall down again and having to push it up again. It occurred to me at some point, oh, that's like poets, you know, had Camus thought about, um, ha had he had more room, he probably would have added the poet. He does uh, talk about uh, the politician and the actor, um, uh, and the quote-unquote conqueror. Uh, and to some extent, poets are find themselves questioning the meaning of existence quite often. And I think it's a wonderful space for me to, uh, you know, if Plato kicked out, kicked poets out of the ideal republic, I think poets, sometimes at war with philosophers, are always trying to prove the case that we are trustworthy, you know? <laughs> and so I think some part of me, um, having been quietly influenced early on as a teenager, like a lot of kind of thinking teenagers in their youth who've read either the myth of Sisyphus or Camus' uh, canonical, The Stranger, um, his words lived with me for many years. And, and I should say, um, the book gently riffs off of some of his ideas of absurdism. So there's a, a series of poems in the volume, uh, the last section, which is called The Absurd Man's Suite. Mm -hmm. Would you tell us a little bit about that suite? Sure. Um, well, I began The Absurd Man right there in Eugene, Oregon back in 1997, and I've been contributing to this. It is my mountain, it's, it's my Sisyphean task uh, 
And I've been adding to this poem. There, there are close to 80 now. Uh, and actually there's more because I tossed them. I've, I've abandoned many of them, but it emerged as a project for me to write about and channel my experiences of growing up in Philadelphia, um, wanting to capture the, the, not only the memories, but also the, the sensuous uh, nature of, of, of a city like uh, Philadelphia. If, you, if you'll recall, urban renewal was also the domestic policy uh, introduced by Nixon, which devastated, interestingly enough, and what I wanted to do by appropriating that title is think about renewal in other ways, renewal particularly through the lens of art and poetry and music and theater. Um, and so the, so the project has emerged over the years as part travelogue, part memoir, a space in which I can go to to kind of reflect upon uh, again, some of the political challenges we face as Afro-Americans and for me particularly, well, we face as a nation and me particularly as an Afro-American. Uh, so it's been a, a, a wide ranging and, and I'm not sure what it's gonna look like in the end, but it's getting close. <laughs> Would you uh, read us another poem of, of, a poem from the volume and, and perhaps from the Urban Renewal series or? Yeah, that's a great idea. I'll, I'll read one from that series. This is, um, me in Vermont uh, called Thinking of Frost. And it's a direct allusion to Robert Frost, who um, is a pillar in American poetry. You read his biography. He was a very cantankerous person. Um, but then if you read deeper into his biography and some of the losses he's experienced and his challenges, um, there's something about the pragmatic Northern New Englander that I wanted to address in this poem. Thinking of Frost. I thought by now my reverence would have waned, matured to the temperate silence of the bookish, or revealed how blase I've grown with age. But the unrestrained joy I feel when the black skein of geese voyages like a drop string from God, slowly shifting. When the decayed apples of an orchard amass beneath the trees like Eve's first party. When driving and the road Vanna whites its crops of corn who, whose stalks will soon give way to a harvester's blade and turn the land to a man's unruly face makes me believe I will never soothe the pagan in me, nor exhibit the propriety of the polite. After a few moons, I'm loud this time of year, unseemly as a chevron of honking, I'm fire in the leaves, obstreperous as a New England farmer. I see fear in the eyes of his children who walk home from school as evening 
falls like an advancing trickle of bats. The sky pungent as bounty and chimney smoke. I read the scowl below the smiles of my parents at my son's soccer game. Their agitation, the figure of wind, yellow leaves make of quaking aspens. I might have bundled that uh, ending a little bit. I read, I read the scowl below the smiles of parents at my son's soccer game. Yeah, so autumn in New England is, and particularly in Vermont is, is uh, quite infamous, the stuff of tourism. Uh, but if you drill down that there's, there's a little darker Gothic edge to it that I wanted to try and, and uh, capture there. So you taught at the University of Vermont for 18 years, a long tenure, but you've recently relocated and you're now at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. And I was wondering how you're feeling about that shift and what inspired it? Oh, wow, great question. I guess a confluence of, of both creative, personal, career, uh, ambitions and restlessness. I have a deep, deep connection to my beloved Vermont. Um, I have stories to tell. And some of those stories involve a connection to the earth that um, that had me believe at one point I would I would probably be buried in that state. And who knows, I still have a, a little small cabin there in the woods that I'll return to in the summers. Uh, Nashville and Vanderbilt was alluring because my family is from here. And there's a graduate, a very prominent graduate program here whose faculty I've long ad admired whose graduates um, I have taught their work. So professionally, it felt like the right move, um, but also I'm, I'm interested in, in ancestry and I'm interested how being here, being back in the South, um, I used to come here as I mentioned in the summers. So I'm interested in how such a move might impact my work and bring me back to a level of, of regard for uh, a land that I once, I once experienced. Um, and culture, I deeply cherished and that was my foundation. So I, I feel really, really lucky. It could have been anywhere, but somehow I'm back home in a way. So you've mentioned that uh, Vanderbilt has an esteemed uh, um, graduate program in creative writing. And you are, uh, as well as being a poet, you are a teacher of poetry. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you think about that aspect of your life and your career, your, your role as a, as a teacher. Mm -hmm. Early on, I would say, and my teaching career began there as a graduate uh, fellow uh, there at at uh, University of Oregon. And back then it was important for me 
to share with students and aspiring writers the craft of poetry. But now I'm aiming for some other place, and that is um, how poetry is as much a deep and spiritual practice, uh, writing poetry, and maybe even reading poetry. It's a secular kind of spiritual uh, undertaking. And so I'm interested in how, how to train young writers to open up to the world around them so that they can see and experience um, the texture and the sounds of what it means to be alive and to somehow let that be the basis of, of their work. So yes, we are reading the prominent poets, the prominent practitioners of the art, canonical and contemporary and even classical. However, I'm interested in having them go outside. I'm interested in introducing them to um, the music of Eric Dolphy and John Cage. I'm interested in having them become aware of the kind of nature writing that um, is a deep, deep part of our lineage here. Um, I want them to know that poems also serve a, a role in, in political movements and social movements, not as, uh, of course, not as sloganeering, but as different kinds of witness that can give a certain kind of uh, uh, energy to others around us, going back to the communal function of, of art. So I, I guess I'm aiming, high, aiming for deeper waters, whereas before it was all surface. <laughs> Major, can I ask you at this point to read another poem? Sure, it'd be a pleasure. This is, um, so this is a poem about um, maybe a, a, an academic figure, but I, I, wanted, I want to uh, claim uh, all of us to, in some form or fashion, are observers around us. I'm talking about the Flanor. And I say as an academic figure, because you know the Flanor um, was quite popular as a uh, 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 touchstone for, for theorists. Uh, but in this particular case, I, I also taught at NYU for uh, many years, uh, one class in the fall. And I just enjoyed being down there in the village and hanging out in Washington Square, visiting friends. But my, my favorite moments are just sitting and looking and watching uh, people. The speaker in this poem is in a city. I don't name it, but I think there are some allusions to New York City in here. Um, and he's just sitting and watching and listening. And I, I, I often uh, believe that poems grounded in uh, the particulars have a way of entering into our bloodstream and activating our own memories. 
The Flanuritans, a well-like summer cocktail is the title. The Flanuritans, a well-like summer cocktail, curbside on an ARP-like table. He's alone, of course, in the arts district, as it were, legs folded, swaying a foot, so that his body seems to summon some deep immensity from all that surrounds. Dust shadows inching near a late 30-ish couple debating the post-galactic abyss of sex with strangers, tourists ambling by, only to disappear into the street's gloomy mouth. A young Italian woman bending to retrieve a drop metro card, its black magnetic strip facing up, a lone speckled brown pigeon breaking from a flock of rock doves, then landing there a crushed fast food wrapper, newly tossed by a bike messenger. The man chortling after a sip of flaxen colored beer, remembering that in the gospel of John, the body and glory converge, linked to incarnation. And so perhaps we manifest each other. A tiny shower of sparks erupting from the knife sharpener's truck who daily leans a blade into stone. A cloudscape reflected in the rear windshield of a halted taxi. We're inside, a trans woman applies auburn lipstick. The warlike insignia on the lapel jacket of a white glove doorman who opening a glass door gets a whiff of a dowager's thick perfume and recalls bailing Timothy Hay as a boy in Albania. The woman distractedly watching a mother discuss Robert Cole Scott's lurid appropriations of modernist art over Niswa's salad, suddenly frees her left breast from its cup, where awaits the blossoming mouth of an infant wildly reaching for a galaxy of milk. The sharp coughs of a student carrying a yoga mat, day's last light edging high rises on the west side so that they seem rimmed by fire. Just when the man says, and yet immense the wages we pay, boarding the great carousel of flesh. Thank you for that. Uh, did you wanna tell us anything more about that poem? You know, as, as I was, uh, well, first of all, I think it's a monastic, a one sentence poem. You can kind of feel that uh, the driving rhythm of the actual scene uh, as a catalog. But I was also uh, thinking about, you know, an important foundation to my life is uh, growing up in the church. And for a moment there, being around old style nuns and priests having gone to Catholic school for a minute. And so much of, I think my childhood at least, because I also spent time in, um, in the Philadelphia Museum of Art as a kid, is wrestling these ideas of, of the body and, um, and intimacy and the fact that I have two people, a man and a woman warring at each other about it, 
probably reflects my, I don't want to psychoanalyze myself, but probably reflects some of that foundation as, as, as a kid. Um, but the, the, that poem is so much a poem about observation. And I, I truly feel as though that that's one of the, one of the un, uh, unremarked jobs of poets is to observe. Well, Major, it has been such a pleasure talking to you and uh, listening to you read your verse. It's such wonderful verse. Um, thank you so much for taking the time. We're looking forward to your reading uh, next week. Thank you, Paul. I'm very grateful. Thank you for your questions. I've been speaking with the poet Major Jackson, author of The Absurd Man, most recently. Jackson will give a virtual reading on May 5th, 2021, as a guest of the University of Oregon's Creative Writing Program. Thanks so much for watching.